Hello everyone, I'm Megan Sullivan and welcome to History in Games, an audio and video podcast where I talk about the real world history hidden inside our favorite video games. Today I'm going to be talking about the god of war himself, Kratos, aka the ghost of Sparta, and the real ghosts that haunted ancient Sparta for centuries. But before I begin, I need to warn you, there will be spoilers for the God of War series, all the way up to God of War Ragnarok. So if you haven't played the latest God of War game, go do that and then come back here. Also, if you like this episode, please like and subscribe to this podcast, whether on your favorite audio platform or on my YouTube channel at History and Games, and I'll be sure to keep bringing you all the History and Games goodness. Oh, and if you have any questions or requests, please feel free to email me at m-e-g-n-s-u-l-l-i-v-a-n at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at, you guessed it, History in Games. Thank you. If you're like me, you've been following the Zeusophobic adventures of Kratos since the early 2000s and have seen Kratos go from the very angry ghost of Sparta to a wiser, more patient deity who has finally untangled himself from the ghosts of his past. And it's a journey worth quickly reviewing before we get to our history lesson. In the original God of War series, Kratos, an overly ambitious Spartan commander, pledges his loyalty to Ares, the Greek god of war, in exchange for his help defeating Sparta's enemies on the battlefield. Ares sees Kratos as the perfect weapon to wield in his planned takeover of the Olympian pantheon, which involves defeating the king of the gods, Zeus, and then becoming the new ruler of Olympus. Thus, he accepts Kratos' pledge of loyalty and binds him to the Blades of Chaos, large twin daggers forged in the depths of Hades that will allow Kratos to wield godlike powers. Kratos, already overpowered as a demigod, a fact he doesn't yet know, is now an unstoppable killing machine. Yet Ares is determined to perfect his new weapon of mass destruction and decides to trick Kratos into cutting his last ties to his humanity so that the Spartan will be even more brutal in battle. The god of war therefore secretly whisks Kratos' wife and daughter to a village Kratos is rampaging through and hides them in a temple, knowing that once inside, Kratos will kill anything that moves. Despite an oracle's warning and his own intuition telling him not to go into the temple, Kratos marches in and predictably goes on a killing spree while setting the temple on fire. It's only after the butchery is done that Kratos realizes the innocents he just slaughtered are his own loved ones. This is an egregious sin, one that causes Kratos to be instantly punished by the gods. For his crime, he is cursed with endless nightmares and his skin forever covered in the ashes of his wife and child, turning it a ghostly white and earning him the nickname Ghost of Sparta. Griffstreaken beyond words, Kratos experiences what the ancient Greeks called menace, a word used to describe both the wrath of the Olympian gods and the anger of Achilles in the Iliad. From then on, Kratos goes on a bloody rampage, first against Ares, whom he kills with the help of Pandora's box, 
and then, over the course of several God of War games, against the entire Olympian pantheon, whom he blames for not only refusing to end his nightmares, not only for making him the new God of War against his will, but for trying to kill him in order to avoid a prophecy that declared all of Olympus would fall to the God of War. Unfortunately, this attempt to avoid the prophecy is exactly what leads to Kratos fulfilling it. By the end of God of War 3, most of the Olympians have been destroyed, and there is nothing left for Kratos or humanity but hope. Kratos' rampage was fueled by vengeance, but in the end, as Kratos admits in God of War Ragnarok, vengeance brought him no peace. The guilt of killing his family remained. It's only after experiencing the love of a new family and enduring an emotionally harrowing journey of self-reflection, aka God of War 2018 and God of War Ragnarok, that Kratos is finally able to literally and figuratively break the chains of his past, and the ghosts haunting him every step of his journey are finally allowed to rest. It's a sensational story. But this is history in games, and my job is to find the real stories hidden inside the God of War series. And as I pondered over the ghost of Sparta, a question came to mind. Was there ever a real ghost of Sparta? A ghost so angry that men feared it? The answer is yes. In fact, there wasn't just a ghost of Sparta. There were many ghosts of Sparta. Spirits that would haunt the citizen soldiers of Kratos' homeland for centuries. But there was one above all. Despite the city-state's attempts throughout history to present itself as a homogeneous, uniform society, which scholars have coined the Spartan Mirage, historians from Herodotus to Plutarch record a shockingly long list of Spartans who were censored, exiled, and outright murdered by their peers. And most of them were from one of the two royal houses of Sparta, the Agiad and the Eurypontid. Murder victims included King Agis IV, who was strangled after a sham trial, his brother Archidamus V, who was assassinated by either the same men who murdered his brother, or possibly by the king who recalled Archidamus from exile, Cleomenes III. There was also Cleomenes I, whom the Spartans claimed went mad and committed harikiri, but who was very likely murdered in order to remove an overly ambitious and volatile king, there was Pelops, who was assassinated by a foreigner named Nabis, and Nabis, who in turn was assassinated by the Aetolian League. One ancient murder victim, King Polydoros, may have even had his own tomb cult, a cult that lasted for hundreds of years and was most likely started in order to appease his vengeful ghost. But there was an even angrier ghost haunting the Spartans, the 5th century BCE king regent Pausanias, whose strange and spectacular fall from grace still has scholars debating about what really happened 2,500 years later. And it's his ghost that might be the real ghost of Sparta. Born into the royal house of Agiad, Prince Pausanias was the son of Prince Cleombrotus and nephew to both King Leonidas and King Cleomenes I. He first appears in the pages of Herodotus's epic work, The Histories, and is portrayed as a somewhat even-keeled commander who leads the Greek army to victory at the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE during the Second Persian War, 
a victory which resulted in the invading Persian army retreating from Greece for good. Thucydides, however, picks up the tale where Herodotus abruptly leaves off and paints Pausanias as an arrogant, overreaching tyrant, willing to sell out all of Hellas, i.e. Greece, in order to live like a Persian prince, despite, according to Thucydides himself, having won three spectacular victories over the Persian army in less than two years, first at Plataea, then on the island of Cyprus, and then at Byzantium, a strategic city on the Hellespont, later called Constantinople and now called Istanbul. Yet Thucydides claims that while in Byzantium, Pausanias proved difficult to deal with, leading to other Greek city-states and the local populace asking the Athenians to take command over the city. Or so the Athenians claimed, it was a rather convenient request, since not only did it allow Athens to take the lead in the war against the Persians, it also allowed them to control the prosperous shipping lanes leading to the Black Sea, which is near the main source of Athens' grain supply. Thus the Athenians happily lodged a formal complaint against Pausanias, even telling the Spartan government that the regent was acting like a Persian, and therefore must have Persian sympathies. This, again, was a strange accusation, considering Pausanias had just chased the Persians out of Byzantium. Nonetheless, the Spartans called Pausanias home and put him on trial. But although they censored him for his abrasive behavior, they found absolutely no evidence of him acting like a Persian, despite Thucydides' insistence that he was in fact already secretly colluding with the Persian king Xerxes to become satrap, that is, preventional governor, of all Greece. Just in case, though, the Spartans kept Pausanias at home and sent a new contingent to oversee things at Byzantium. However, when the Spartans arrived, they were rebuffed by the Athenians and had to return home. Thucydides claims the Spartans were totally fine with this. They were finished battling the Persians anyway. But if this is true, then this should have been the end of the story. But it's not. And this is where Thucydides' normally objective record-keeping goes completely off-rails. The tale is extremely garbled, but according to the historian, Pausanias decided to return to Byzantium on his own, but was later besieged and expelled from the city by the Athenians. He then travels to the nearby city of Colonae, for reasons unknown, although Thucydides speculates it's to continue his nefarious plans to rule Greece on behalf of Persia. Eventually, the Spartans contact Pausanias via a secret decoder device called a skitale, demanding he return home. Pausanias willingly does so, and is promptly thrown in jail on charges he is indeed colluding with the Persians. But there's still no evidence for this. Then, and hang on folks, this is where it gets wild, a string of crazy events happen, including government officials hiding behind a curtain while Pausanias confesses to a messenger that yes, he is colluding with Xerxes via a series of letters and is having the delivery men killed so they don't tattle on him. Then the Spartan officials magically get a hold of one of these letters, but apparently neither of these things is enough to convict Pausanias of a crime. So then the officials pivot from accusations of Persian sympathies to accusations that Pausanias was trying to start a slave revolt in Sparta. But there's no evidence for this either. So the officials go back to accusations of colluding with the Persians. Now it's pretty obvious at this point that Pausanias had very persistent enemies in Sparta, and they were determined to make these charges, or any charges, stick. But why? 
Modern scholars can't seem to agree on a simple explanation, but there are a handful of theories that do make sense. The first takes Thucydides at face value. Yes, Pausanias was a prickly pear who got greedy and full of himself and would do anything for power and money. Now, this theory is not impossible. There are plenty of modern examples of people who are corrupted by wealth and power and keep getting away with it, but it's unlikely. Pausanias had just chased the Persians out of Greece, out of Cyprus, and out of Byzantium. He was also the nephew of King Leonidas, whose heroic sacrifice at Thermopylae was already the stuff of legend. Thus, it's highly unlikely the regent would tarnish his reputation and that of his house just to turn traitor on a Persian dime. There are other scenarios, however, and they're much more likely. One theory is that Sparta was split into two camps at the end of the Second Persian War. A hawkish group that wanted to continue expanding Sparta's influence abroad, which meant taking back Byzantium and aiding city-states that were being bullied into joining Athens' new Delian League, and a more cautious group that wanted to focus on expanding Sparta's influence closer to home. Pausanias may have been the leader of the Hawks, which would explain his determination to hang around Byzantium, where he could ensure that Sparta continued to have influence. One spicy take even adds that his collusion with the Persians was actually him secretly helping a Persian named Megabates plan a revolt against King Xerxes, but that the plan was discovered and or fell apart at the last minute. The Spartan doves, if you can really call them that, may have used this or the possible double-crossing of the Greeks by a man named Gongylos, whom Pausanias had made governor of Byzantium, as a pretext to bring charges against the regent. Another plausible theory is that the Spartans did want to disengage themselves from a distant war with Persia, but in order to check the rising star of Athens, began to secretly negotiate with the Persians, something they would in fact later do during the Second Peloponnesian War, and sent Pausanias, who twice had been snubbed by the Athenians, as the lead negotiator. This would explain the skitale the young regent had on him. You see, a skitale is a Spartan device used to pass along coded messages. The way it worked was that a long stick was broken in half. Then one half was given to a Spartan commander, and the other half stayed at Sparta so government officials could stay in contact with the officer in charge of activities abroad. If the commander or the officials wanted to send a message to each other, they would wrap a piece of leather around their half of the decoder stick so that the edges met. The surface was then written on crosswise, unrolled, and then sent to its destination. It could only be read again when recoiled around the matching stick. Otherwise, the words remained indecipherable to anyone else reading it. Since Pausanias was able to read the Skitale, it means that his mission in Colonae was state-sanctioned and that the government knew exactly what he was up to. It's only when their plan to undermine the Athenians was close to being discovered that they decided to try and make Pausanias a scapegoat and thus brought him back to Sparta. But whatever the truth, some Spartan officials believed that Pausanias either had too much influence or simply knew too much. Thus they were determined to get rid of him. But since they couldn't get rid of him through legal means, they decided to resort to murder. And here's how they did it. After yet more charges against him were thrown out, Pausanias was tipped off by a government official, no less, that his enemies were planning to get rid of him, one way or the other. 
Alarmed and perhaps remembering the grisly fate of his royal uncle Cleomenes and maybe even the ancient king Polydoros, Pausanias raced to the city's Acropolis and claimed sanctuary at the Temple of Athena, also known as the Temple of the Brazen House. In theory, this was a smart move. The ultra-religious and superstitious Spartans could do him no harm there. After all, it was sacrilege to kill a suppliant. But his enemies refused to let Pausanias out of Sparta alive. They couldn't physically attack him, so they decided to block the entrance to the temple instead, trapping Pausanias inside with no food and no water. Then, days later, when he was on the brink of death, they dragged the weakened prince out of the temple right before he died, so that his dead body wouldn't pollute the sanctuary. By the way, later authors would add their own lurid details to the story, but for now, we'll simply go with what Thucydides has to say on the matter. It was a pitiful end for the victor of Plataea, but even that was not the end of the story. Because although the Spartans were finished with Pausanias, Pausanias was not finished with them. Years later, when the city-state was experiencing some sort of unspecified trouble, the rattled Spartans feared it was due to the vengeful ghost of Pausanias. As was their habit, they consulted the oracle at Delphi, asking what they should do. The normally ambiguous oracle gave them a stinging reply. The goddess Athena demanded her suppliant back, and if they wanted to appease this angry ghost of Sparta, they were first to move his body onto the sacred grounds of Athena's temple, placing a monument to Pausanias over it. Then they were to commission not one, but two bronze statues of the young regent, and place them at the entrance of the brazen house for all to see. The Spartans, in what might be an acknowledgement of their guilt, were quick to obey. Then when the bones of Leonidas were brought back to the city from Thermopylae nearly half a century after his death, an annual athletic contest was held for both him and his nephew. Whatever necrotic power Pausanias possessed, it was enough to scare the fearless warriors of Sparta into giving him a cult, traces of which another Pausanias detected on his travels around Greece some 500 years later. So, was there a real ghost of Sparta? Yes, and in fact, there were many ghosts of Sparta, ones whose monuments and portraits are long gone, but thanks to ancient historians, archaeological evidence, and the feisty debates between scholars continue to live on just like Kratos. And that's it for this episode of History and Games. What did you think? Questions, comments, suggestions? Leave them in the comments section below. Thanks so much for supporting History and Games, everyone. See you later.